And Lord, on this 4th of July, we, we look around us to see what is happening in our nation and among our people that is called Americans. And Lord, it's with somewhat heavy hearts that we come before you today. Lord, we just ask that you would take this time that is dedicated to your worship and let us turn our eyes and our hearts from the sorrows and the defeats and the sin and the things that are destroying this land back to the God that founded this country all those years ago. Lord, we know the answer's not in the White House. That's not because of who's there. It's never been there. The answer's always been in your word. Lord, we just ask that we would worship you today with our hearts and with our lives. And Lord, most of all, that when all is said and done, you would receive honor and glory and praise because of the lives that we live according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take your Bibles. And uh, just want to give a little bit of information here at the beginning because I do not want to seem in any way of trying to find proof texts in the Bible to prove American history. It's quite the opposite in reality. The men who founded this country were looking for something to live for, something to do, and they found those things to live for in this book called the Bible, and they translated them into the founding of the government of the United States. Now, that's quite a big statement. That's contrary to most everything you've heard, and uh, it's kind of interesting. I uh, uh, have a set of uh, American history encyclopedias printed in the year 1906, I think it was. It was uh, just before Theodore Roosevelt ascended to the White House. McKinley was actually the president. And uh, I looked up the Declaration of Independence in this set of encyclopedias on American history. And uh, it was absolutely unbelievable what I found there. You would think, written about 1900, there would be a lot of patriotism and, and uh, things in there, and it had an entire section, page after page, on criticisms of the Declaration of the Independence. I thought, man, this is unbelievable. Then I started reading them, and those criticisms were unbelievable. The number one criticism of the Declaration of Independence was that it was not an original document. These were not ideals original with Thomas Jefferson and, and, and uh, Benjamin Franklin and the other men uh, that were on there. And um, I'm sorry, I, I tend to be very plain in my speech, but I, it's been a long time since I've read anything that stupid. Uh, because what they claimed in the Declaration was simply this, that these were inalienable inalienable, I'll get it out all the way here sooner or later, inalienable rights that were given to each human being by the Creator. Now, by the definition and what those words are talking about, it cannot be something new. 
Because if God gave these things to individuals, it's got to be as old as creation itself. Which just tells me that the critic who is writing the paper, um, there's only like two options. One is either gross ignorance. I mean, just absolutely not understanding a word of what he's writing about. And that does happen on occasion. The, the other one is purposeful indolence. That's where you're stupid on purpose. I mean, my dad had a way of putting things. I mean, uh, he said, if you make an honest mistake, if you do something dumb, that can be fixed. But when you do it on purpose, you, you just can't fix that. that. I mean, stupid on purpose is a problem. And, and I have a feeling that the latter was the more the case because for the last hundred or so years of our history, we have spent criticizing this document. And we've tried to relegate the Declaration of Independence as some kind of um, uh, uh, pious platitudes because these men wanted to fight Great Britain. Now, I want you to stop and think about that a minute. Great Britain was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And these men just wanted to go to war with Great Britain because they didn't have anything else to do. That's what some historians would have you believe. Um, someone said, yes, the revolution was manipulation by the Bostonian merchants to, uh, to increase uh, their trade and protect their income. It was just pure greed, nothing more, nothing less. Have you ever studied the history of the signers of the Declaration of Independence? You, you ought to do that sometime. Now, George Washington did not sign the Declaration of Independence. Uh, there was one reason he was not there at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, he was leading the Continental Army. So he was kind of busy and couldn't be there to sit and haggle and debate about words and things because men's lives were on the line. But let me just illustrate the point, and this is something that People just don't put in history books today. We had several years after the, uh, after the revolution was won and freedom was secured under what we call the Articles of Confederation. It didn't take very long for these men to realize that these Articles of Confederation were completely flawed and the government that was set up was not going to work was not going to survive even the lifetime of the men who were trying to get it out. So they came together and they wrote this thing we call the Constitution of the United States. George Washington was elected our first president. Here's the point. When he came to this city, just a few miles from here as the crow flies, less than four miles in Manhattan, to be inaugurated as the first president of the United States, he had to borrow money to make the trip from Virginia to New York City to become president because of his lack of attention to his plantation during the revolution had almost ruined him completely financially. 
You don't hear those kinds of things in history taught today. Most of those men that signed the Declaration of Independence lost everything they possessed because they signed that document. We look, at the con we look at the Constitution, we look at the Declaration of Independence now, and we go back and we say, these were the documents that caused things to happen, and nothing could be further from the case. These documents were the embodiment of what was going on in society as a whole at the time. This idea of the three inalienable rights, as were penned by Mr. Jefferson, we have life, we have liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Now, many people think that the pursuit of happiness simply means I get to chase after what makes me happy. Uh, could I challenge you today to think that that's why George Washington had to borrow money to get to New York City to be inaugurated president because he was chasing what was making him happy. Anybody believe that? I hope not. There's been a lot of writing on the issue, uh, and uh, I'll just use the Bible term instead of the common term today of the rights of sodomites. There's been a lot. And they say, we have the right to pursue happiness as well. I, I want to set the context for the Declaration of Independence. And we're going to do some history here because we're going to find out that the reason why this revolution was fought and the reason why these men wrote these documents is because there were some things going on in the colonies at that time. They had not become the United States yet. How many of you are familiar with the term the Great Awakening? If you've studied American history, there will always be a little sentence in there pre-revolutionary history. Uh, there were two kind of nutcases, John Edwards, who was later chased from his pulpit and his position as the president of the university, and, and, and this other nutcase named George Whitfield. If you've ever seen a picture of George Whitfield, he suffered from what we call lazy eye. One eye was turned in, and they always want to emphasize that to make him look a little dim-witted. Uh, nothing could be further from the case. These two men had studied this book called the Bible. George Whitfield came from England with a message from God. Jonathan Edwards was troubled because they had passed a law in Massachusetts saying that if anyone called themselves a Christian, they had to be made a member of the state church. And as he looked out over his congregation on Sunday morning, people were not there because they wanted to be there, as the case is this morning. They were there because they had to be there, because if you didn't show up in church on Sunday morning in the state of Massachusetts, you could lose your job on Monday morning. If you did not pay your taxes, your tithe to the government, which in turn turned it over to the congregational church, you would forfeit your property. It was unbelievable tyranny. 
And as he looked out over his congregation, he saw a church building filled with people who had no knowledge of salvation, of Jesus Christ as their Savior. They were there because they were, quote-unquote, pursuing happiness. They wanted to keep their property, so they were in church. He got up and read a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I move around a little bit when I preach. I raise my voice a little bit. I, I try to make it as exciting as my dull and boring personality can, can take it. Uh, but let me tell you, Mr. Edwards did none of those things. He stood stock still, hardly moved, and read his sermon in a dronerous monotone. Droning monotone, I should say. And before the service was over, there were people literally clinging to the pillars that held the building up, praying that God would not let them fall into hell until he gave the invitation. Well, he didn't actually give an invitation. He said, if anybody's interested, come see me. And, and people got saved. They fell under the conviction of sin. And that began to spread throughout the colonies. This happened a little more than a decade before, actually about 20 years before the revolution. People's hearts were being prepared to follow the word of God. You see, when we give testimony to inalienable rights that are given by a creator, we are recognizing the existence of God. We are recognizing the authority of that God. And we are recognizing our need for his interaction in every part of our life. I was reading a couple of articles that were written on this idea of the pursuit of happiness. And, and these were not for, these were individual rights, but the application was in the civil or the society as a whole. Uh, it's often been joked, your liberty, your freedom to stretch your arm ends where my nose begins. You don't have the freedom to injure another person with your liberty. And, and we make somewhat light of that on occasion, but uh, let me explain something. Life. Only comes from God. Man in all of his incredible inventions and machinery, I'm, I'm glad for the heart and lung machine that they can actually take a person and disconnect their heart, put them on this machine and keep them alive until they can install another heart and get them to the point, we call it a heart transplant operation. Uh, it's absolutely amazing to me. I don't understand it, but I'm glad they're able to do it. I'm glad that they can take a body. Uh, I think of the advances uh, in, our, in our military and things where a man is wounded and, and three-quarters of the way dead, he is treated on the battlefield, rushed to a shock trauma unit, and in 24 hours... He is stabilized and taken to one of the greatest hospitals in the world in the military base in Germany. 
and they have put people back together again that were just literally blown apart. It's amazing to me what people can do. But they can't create life. They can't start life. Peter's taking an extension course. He's trying to do summer school to get up enough credits. And he said, Dad, I'm studying anthropology. He said, I thought this was really going to be boring stuff. But man, it, I, I wish I had enough time to study. And, and one of the things about anthropology is where does the soul of man come from? You wouldn't believe what people say. Some people say God created all the souls and put them in a bank in heaven. And when you take your first breath, he drops a soul into that little body. Amazing. Uh, it's just real simple. When God created man, he created man with the ability to procreate or to produce other human beings. And when those two physical half-cells come together, what we call conception, everything is right there. God doesn't have to stop what he's doing and create a new soul or pull one out of the bank and deposit it in. It's right there. Everything, because life comes from God. And yet, may I challenge you that the debate for the last 30 years in our country has been when can the government or the doctors or other human beings willfully take other people's lives? Oh, we call it abortion, but that is murder. We call it mercy killing, uh, but I think if... Terry Schiavo could talk, she would call it murder. She can't talk. They starved her to death. There was no machine keeping her alive. It was just more convenient to have her out of the way. You say, but you, you, you would propose having that person on a feeding tube and laying there for 30 years suffering? We don't know what's going on, but let me tell you something. Life is so precious. It's a gift that God gives. And God sometimes allows us to have to deal with profoundly retarded and sick people for long periods of time because he wants to teach us how precious life is. And that no government has the right to determine when you live and when you die. No other human being should have that right We should always err on the side of life. Someone said, well, if, if we listened to you, we'd have people hooked up with machines and all of that. We're not talking about prolonging death. We're talking about prolonging life. If that person can breathe and their heart beats on their own, quality of life is, is a false argument. Life is the argument. 
If you cannot breathe on your own, if you can't live, if you cannot, um, uh, if your heart will not beat, you're going to die. By the way, it's happened, it's gruesome, and we don't want to spend a lot of time here this morning, but they've taken people with traumatic brain injuries, people with no brain waves, people that are dead, and hooked them up to machines and kept their heart beating, and just to put it as mildly as I can, the the bodies decomposed right there in the hospital on the machines because they were dead. That's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is when someone's alive. If they can't feed themselves, what do we do? We feed them, amen? It's just that simple. You see, abortion was an issue in 1776. How many people knew that? How many knew that there were doctors performing abortion in the days of Jesus Christ in the Roman Empire? These things are documented in history. And see, everybody wants to go to the Romans and the Greeks to find justification for our history. But have you ever studied the history of the Roman Empire? Do you really want to go back and find justification for what we do from them? And I'm an Italian uh, of Italian heritage. I, I don't want to go there. They were some of the cruelest people who lived on the face of the earth. I, I want to go here. Find my justification. Amen? That's what these men said. They said there's a God who gives life. We don't have a right to take that life. Then comes liberty. What did Jesus tell the men that were following? If ye know the Son, then ye shall be what? Free indeed. You see, Jesus, when he talked about liberty, he was talking about the absence of slavery and bondage. The history of human government is a history of men's subjugation of other men. Until the founding of this country, every government that was formed by man from the simple tribes in the farthest and darkest jungles of Africa and Australia right up uh, until the king that sat upon the throne in, in many countries of the world, the government was always dependent upon this special class of people who were just a little bit better than everybody else. Unless you talk to them, then you found out they were a lot better than everyone else. And by the way, communism and socialism and all of these things we have today depend upon the same thing. There has got to be this small group of ruling elites who know and are able to perceive and understand everything far above that of the normal man, and they will make everything work. Has it ever worked? No. Somebody will say, well, this country's not working. Well, this country's not working because we have left the principles that it was founded upon. We now have a ruling elite. 
They're the smartest people. How many of you heard? He's the smartest man in the world. He's the only one that can solve our financial, our financial crisis. I mean, every day on the news. What did they say about our president? He's the smartest man that's ever been in the White House. Let me, let me tell you something. And, and it's not just that I'm against our president. I'm not, I'm not against him. I'm against many of his policies because they're against this book called the Bible. But liberty is the freedom from slavery. When I get up in the morning, should the government tell me what I can wear? Should the government tell me what I can eat? You see, Thomas Jefferson, when he penned these things, we get into so many questions, and, and please don't misunderstand, I am not a libertarian. If we have any group of cowards and demons in our society today, it would be the libertarians. You see, when Thomas Jefferson penned these words, he was not just copying John Locke saying, life, liberty, and property. He was trying to encompass something greater than that. You see, life and liberty without this third thing really aren't life and really aren't liberty. And this third thing and the reason why we have such a difficulty understanding what the pursuit of happiness is, is because we refuse to go to the Bible and find out what the Bible says. You see, that's where Thomas Jefferson went to find those words. Not those exact words, but this idea that's represented by those words. And Thomas Jefferson, I have no hope by anything that he wrote that I'll ever see him in heaven. He gave no evidence of being a born-again Christian. But he did believe in the Bible and read it extensively. John Adams, our second president, said that every American citizen has the duty to read through this book at least once a year. Hint, hint. Now, if I were to ask the question, how many of you are struggling with your Bible reading schedule? Oh, my, that thing, Pastor, that's too much. George Washington gave ample testimony of his belief in this book called the Bible. And by the way, there's a painting in the rotunda of John of uh, John Gano, his personal chaplain during the Revolutionary War, baptizing him in the Potomac River. Uh, by the way, John Gano was the founding pastor of First Baptist Church in Manhattan. Baptists only baptize people who are saved. That was kind of interesting. Unfortunately, many of our older Baptist churches have turned from this book and came to many other things and have become nothing more than just social clubs. But that was not the case. You say, why did John Gano, as a pastor, join the Continental Army? Well, it's very simple. The 
British were in control of New York City, and if you weren't a member of the Anglican Church, you couldn't hold services because you were a subversive. This was the kind of tyranny that they were fighting against in the revolution. Now we come to this idea of the pursuit of happiness, and and we're going to look at some passages today here in the Bible and try to define this biblically and try to get an understanding of what this is because uh, it's still... These, these are things that were given by God, not by government. These were things that were not new. This was not a new formulation that in the minds of our founding fathers, they were not trying to start something that had never been done. What they were trying to do was just get back to the way things ought to be. And we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to start reading in verse 14. We're going to read through verse 18. It says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, you may think that I'm just going into the Bible and pulling some words out of context here. But this is the essence of this idea, the pursuit of happiness. The foundation here is that there is an overriding reason and theme to life. What we've done is we've removed God from government. We've removed God from our physical life. And the overriding theme of our life and our existence today is to get what you can and can all you get. It's to live the good life. We talk about the American dream. Let me tell you, the American dream of today was the nightmare of our founding fathers. Because if they knew that if we moved away from this guiding principle that, listen, my life is not about me, it's about God that we would see the destruction of this nation. And that's what we're witnessing today. We're witnessing the government being more and more in charge of every part of our lives. You see, it's the love of Christ that's supposed to constrain me. tried to illustrate this, and hopefully this will make sense. But uh, I received a letter from the New York Board of Workers' Compensation. Uh, Don't get alarmed. It's not going to happen. But they claimed that we didn't have a proper workman's compensation policy and sent us a $16,000 penalty letter. Now, we have the... We have the form and we had the insurance and they're not going to be able to get that through because it was our insurance company 
who took someone else's uh, identification number and put it on our form, and when it didn't match, they said, you have no coverage. Now, we've had the coverage. But I want to illustrate just the point of how invasive government is. They sent us a penalty for $16,000 from March until the first week in June. Now, how in the world could our church operate if that were penalty were going to stick? I mean, uh, that would be three-quarters or almost all of our general offerings. It, it's absolutely insane. Why do they think they have a right to do that? Well, you see, workers are not taken care of properly by their employers. Does anybody here understand what workers' compensation really does? It protects your boss from having to pay too much to you. It doesn't protect the worker at all. It limits the, le the levels of your ability to sue your boss if he's negligent. So don't get happy when you see that workers' comp policy there. Uh, it's not helping you, it's, it's hurting you. You see, the government, when they do something, they never have your best interest at heart. They always have theirs. You see, every company, every organization has to have this because New York State needs the money to take care of all the injured workers. But if you get injured, you've got to hire a lawyer to sue the Workers' Compensation Board to get them to pay you something. Don't believe me? People that know about this, nod your heads up and down, would you please? Or, or wave your hand saying, I'm not making this up. You see, if my first idea and understanding of life is the love of Christ, then I'm going to take care of the people that work around the church. Amen? I'm not personally, but our church is going to. Because if we love Christ, we love those people. And we're going to do all that we can to keep them safe. But you know, life is uncertain and accidents do happen. And that doesn't mean that we sue the socks off of somebody just because an accident happens. Because, see, if that person has the love of Christ overriding their soul as well, we're going to understand that there's somebody bigger than you in charge and we can work forward and move forward in spite of the injury, in spite of things that have happened, and continue to serve Christ. By the way, that's the way things used to be in this country before the government took over that thing. But we got to go back a ways to find it. You see, our freedoms in this nation were understood by the men that founded it to rest upon the character of the individual citizen, not upon the character of government. A free people must have limits, self imposed limits to their freedom, 
And if we self-impose those limits to our own personal freedom to benefit others, there's got to be some overriding principle that demands or determines what is limited and what is not. Now, we have lost that completely in our society and therefore the government comes in and says, I'll determine what freedoms are limited by you and you and you so that we can enjoy what we think we ought to enjoy. And that's why the government says your rights to protest in an abortion clinic are restricted by the freedom of those people who desire and need to kill their babies. You see how convoluted this thing becomes? And it does because we remove the principle of true morality from the hearts of the individuals. And that principle is outlined right here. You see, it's the love of Christ that constrains us. He died for me, therefore I have no right to live for myself. I'm supposed to live for Jesus Christ. And as I live for Jesus Christ, my number one goal is to reconcile or help others find that relationship with God. Now, if everyone were saved in this nation, would we need a police force? Of course we would. Because saved people do wrong things. You thought I was going somewhere else, didn't you? You see, salvation does not remove our sin nature. But let me just give you a little illustration. In the 1950s, the public school system of the United States had problems. You know what the number one problem was in 1950 in the United States public school system? Talking in class. How many of you wish we could go back to 1950 right now? The number one problem we face in public schools today is physical violence. Student on student, student against teacher, teachers against students. We have to have police in the hallways and metal detectors in many of our schools. Why? Well, it's because those filthy, rotten Ten Commandments, they might influence somebody. How about thou shalt not kill life? Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Has to deal with liberty, amen. Thou shalt not steal. You see, that's what liberty is. Liberty is the freedom not to have to lock everything up because somebody else is going to take it away. That's the freedom that they, they were, that's the liberty that they were talking about. They weren't talking about property. When he talked about the pursuit of happiness, he was talking about a people who actually cared about other people. Where in the world would he find that kind of a principle? Let me ask you something. Can you be truly happy if your neighbor's trying to kill you? Can you pursue happiness or a, a good life 
If you have bands of people roving the streets trying to take everything that belongs to you and, and, and abuse you and your family, can you pursue happiness if your community was interested in loving Jesus Christ and had freedom to choose to worship Christ or not to choose to worship Christ? But they didn't have freedom to violate the principles of this book called the Bible. You go back a hundred years and I'll challenge you, most unsaved people living in this country were better Christians than many of the people who wear the name today. Did you get what I was saying? Where did that come from? Well, it came from this idea of the pursuit of happiness. When we have a tragedy strike, guess what? Everybody starts helping everybody, don't they? Why do we have to have B? Because a good moral person is actually going to care about what goes on around him and how his freedoms affect other people. Today your neighbor turns up the stereo too loud. What do you do? You go in and turn up yours louder, right? Uh, we'll just have the battle of the boomboxes. What does it solve? It just irritates everybody else that doesn't have one. Let's go to Romans chapter 14. The context here is arguing in the church, judging other people. And of course, one of the things that we have today is we have people saying, hey, listen, if I want to smoke marijuana in my own home, that's my own business. And believe it or not, some of them actually go to this passage and say, you can't judge me. The Bible says judge no man. God allows me to do these things. Well, let's just read what the Bible says. Verse 7, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord of both, Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Facet of this idea of the pursuit of happiness. You see, as a society, there's got to be a standard of righteousness. There's got to be what is morally accepted and what is not. Actually, let's put it where it ought to be. There ought to be a difference between right and wrong. Amen? Now, society is not allowed to choose what is right and what is wrong because God has already made that choice. God has already decided what is right. He's already decided what is wrong. And over 1700, almost 1,700 years before this country was founded, he had a whole book about it. Amen? And the idea is, listen, 
I am supposed to personally worry about me. And if every person or even a small percentage of people were to take the concern and worry about their own lives instead of everyone else's, there wouldn't be much room for everyone else to talk. You see where we're going with this thing. In the revolutionary time of our nation, they tell us that about one-third of the colonies were pro-England. They were what we know as Tories. They were for King George, and they wanted the monarchy and everything to continue as it was. There was about a third that didn't care. They were only interested in one thing. To them, the pursuit of happiness was another dollar, another gold coin. Then there was a third that were pro-freedom or for the causes that developed the revolution. And those third changed the events of human history. Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And what? Few there be that find it. Now, I'm not trying to tell you everyone for the cause of freedom was saved. That's, please don't make that correlation. I'm not making it, not attempting to. But what I am saying is, listen, as a saved individual, if you're here today, your job is to serve Christ. Not stand up and criticize everybody else. Now, we have the duty to use this book called the Bible to differentiate between right and wrong. People say all the time, you're so dogmatic, you're just judgmental. No, I'm, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I am dogmatic. I mean, I am very convinced in what I say because this is God's word, and if he said it, it's right, and if you disagree with it, I'm sorry, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with God. And if you disagree with God, you're in big trouble. And I want to help you not get into big trouble with God someday. Because every person is going to stand before God. That's what this passage says. The last passage we were in, God's given us a ministry of reconciliation. That means it's my job to show you what the Bible says so that you can come and be close to Christ. Amen? See, someone that truly cares about you is able to look you straight in the face and say, listen, you're wrong. This is a problem. And I'm not here just to pick out the problems. I've brought the answer. And it's a long and complicated process that got you into this mess. And it may be a long and complicated process to get you out of everything and where you ought to be, but it's a very simple thing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And He'll change everything about you. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 22, and we'll be done. 
Of any verses that we're looking at today, these are the verses that embody the ideal of the pursuit of happiness more than anything. You see, when the government comes in and restricts my freedom of decision and and tells me what I can and cannot do and, and puts all these boundaries around and starts telling us everything, every move that we can make, the food we can eat, the clothes we can wear, etc., etc. We come here to Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, and you'll find out that you don't have freedom to do what these verses say. Verse 36 in Matthew 22, Master, this was a lawyer asking Jesus a question. Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus saith unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. That's not one of the Ten Commandments, by the way. He said the first commandment of the law is to love the Lord thy God. That's the overriding principle of truth and justice. That's the difference between right and wrong. That's the difference between good and evil. But look at the second one. And the second, verse 39, and the second great commandment is what Jesus is saying. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In the Old Testament law, there's 613 commandments. God's interested in every one of them or he wouldn't have put them in the Bible. If you want to fulfill 613 commandments in the Old Testament law, Jesus said, number one, love God. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. But I want to challenge you today. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself if your whole life is consumed with bureaucratic red tape and trying to keep your own head above water. You've got to have a little bit of freedom to move and make decisions in order to love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, you need to have a little bit of capital in order to love your neighbor as yourself. If the government takes it all, You don't have anything left over to help anybody with. Uh, by, By the way, if the government regulates everything, then you have no freedom except to obey regulation. Now, see, this had been going on in Europe for centuries. And the people of the British Empire had subjugated themselves to the kings for generations. In fact, they even tried to get rid of the kings. Anybody remember Oliver Cromwell? Somebody was saying, oh, we need a revolution in this country. We need, and I said, listen, God save us from Oliver Cromwell. You go read the history books, find out what that means. He was worse than the king. In fact, they brought the king back when he was, when they were done with him. You see, freedom is freedom from sin and enslavement. True freedom doesn't demand another person has to serve me. 
We call it self-determination. That's what the pursuit of happiness embodies. But if you look around our society today, and I know we've waded through some deep waters and we'll be done in just a few minutes here. I mean, this is not a sermon. You may have to go online and get the tape tomorrow or Tuesday whenever it gets up off the website and listen to it a couple of times. But I want you to understand something. This idea of the pursuit of happiness was not to seek what's best for me. It's to seek the welfare of those around me. Loving my neighbor as myself. There's only one force in the universe that can allow you to do that. That's God. Because I don't naturally love my neighbor as myself. I naturally love me a little better. And don't laugh at me. You do the same thing, don't you? That is human nature. One for you, two for me. I mean, there's all kinds of ways we do this. But let me tell you something. George Washington did not lead the Continental Army because he was on a power kick and liked the idea of sitting on a horse and telling men what to do. He was at the point of personal bankruptcy. And he was trying to put his house back in order when the nation called upon him to be the president. And by the way, he took a pay cut to become the president because he loved this country more than he did his own life and his own welfare. We have thousands of men and women in uniform all over this world. They're not there I would say the vast majority are not there because, man, I like these new guns. They're really cool. I like killing people. There's no honest human being that likes any of that stuff. They do it because they have to. Because if they weren't fighting there, we'd be fighting here. That's the truth of it. Why do they do that? I, I wish it was because every serviceman and woman is a Christian. That's not why. But they've got the principle out of the Bible. They have the training and the ability. You don't want to see your pastor in combat gear. I'd be a danger to everything in the immediate area. Especially if one of my contacts fell out. I could not recognize friend or foe at five paces. I mean, that's a scary thought to me. That's why the Lord didn't let me go to, into the military. Is it because I, I can't see? I, I, need to, I need contacts, and now I need reading glasses on top of them and all those things. I, I think I'll do better right where God put me. Amen. But I'm thankful that they are willing to endure the hardness to protect us. If we could get that spirit a little bit more here, we wouldn't have all the problems we do. Amen? For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him. By the way, 
that doesn't include Allah and Muhammad, that doesn't include Buddha, that doesn't include the great spirit of the ancient Indians, it, it doesn't include the twelve apostles and, and the saints, it, it doesn't include uh, anything else, it, it just says, in him. That's the message of this book called the Bible. No Bible-believing Christian has ever used force to demand another soul submit themselves to Jesus Christ. Any person that does that, any religion that does that, is not a Bible religion. That's why we reject the Roman Catholic Church. That's why we reject the Orthodox Church. By the way, that's why we reject Protestantism. Baptists are not Protestants. Study the history. The only thing that the, uh, the Protestant and the Catholics agreed on, other than their origin being with St. Peter, who was not the first pope, was their hatred of people who believed the Bible. We were as persecuted by the Protestants as we ever were by the Catholics. What we're trying to do is obey the Scriptures. By the way, that's why we use the name Baptist. Many people have sullied the name, but they can't change the history. And we want to make that contact, and we want to keep that clear. We want people to understand who we are. Some of you are here because somebody dragged you here this morning. We're glad you're here. Amen. Most of us are here. The members are here. I hope you're here because you want to be here. As one preacher said, I still don't understand why anybody comes to hear me preach, and I echo his sentiment. But I'll tell you, the only thing I understand is what we're talking about is what's in this book. And anyone who believes in Jesus ought to want to know more about what's in this book. That's the reason we're here. Now, I read a treatise on how to solve the problem and refocus this country on the true pursuit of happiness. Uh, I want to challenge you today that that's not our job. Go back to our second point. We're not here to harp and criticize what everybody else is doing. They're doing what they're doing because they believe what they're doing is right. What we have to do is take the truth to those who want to believe it and help them find Jesus Christ. We do not want to make this country a theocracy because then we would have to be the dictators and it, the moment we did that, we'd be disobeying the, the word of God. The founders of this country wanted God to be in charge through the words of his book, but they wanted each citizen to take a personal responsibility to love others more than their own self. That's why they fought and died in the revolution. We were at Brother uh, Hiram Davis's church in Fleshman in New York. We, we have organized that church out of our church. And so we were up there, and there's a cemetery right beside the church. The building was built in the 1840s, and I just went out walking through the cemetery just to see what was there. I, I like old cemeteries. And uh, there was a tombstone of a man. I took a picture of it. 
His name was Todd, last name. He died at 101 years old. On the bottom of his tombstone, it said he served with General Washington in the Army of the Revolution. Then I walked a few rows closer, and it was either his grandson or his grandnephew, some same last name buried in the family plot there. He died, I think it was August something, 1862, in the service of preserving the Union during the Civil War. I don't know about you, but those things move me a little bit. There were sacrifices made. There's huge cemeteries in the Philippines. Maybe if the Lord ever lets me go there, I want to stop and see that. It's not for Filipinos. It's for the Americans who gave their lives so that the Filipinos could be free. That's the pursuit of happiness. You can go all over this world and you can find cemeteries not for the people of that nation, but for the people of this nation who gave their lives to fight Nazis, to fight the communists, to fight repression. That's the pursuit of happiness. If we could apply that, we'd close Wall Street down. We wouldn't need it anymore. Because it's not just another way to make another buck. We could dismantle nine-tenths of our government. And we would be free again. But you know what? Read your Bible. That's not what's going to happen. The Antichrist is coming. And his way must be prepared. Because prophecy will be fulfilled. But after him, the king of kings, the prince of peace will rule a thousand years from the city of peace. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But till he gets here, you have the responsibility to live the life that the love of Christ constrains you to live. And that will mean that you're not going to spend your time yelling at everybody else. You're going to check out your sin first. By the way, that means you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And Lord, it's kind of hard on this day, the day after the founding of this country, and the, to all the talk of the Declaration of Independence in history, to not to think that somehow we're trying to justify or condemn what's going on in this nation today. And Lord, I pray that none of us would let our minds run that direction during these next few moments. But Lord, we would allow our minds to run back to your word, and then we would look at our lives. And Lord, that you would convict us of our personal sin. That you would show us where we have failed you. 
And Lord, that we would come to you seeking your forgiveness. Lord, we pray for those that are here today that are not saved. That at least this would be another step in the realization and understanding of your word, another step closer toward the Savior, that ministry of reconciliation. We pray that there be one here today that is ready to make that decision, that they would not leave this place without surrendering their heart and soul to Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would stop looking at all the wrong around us and ask you to make us obedient to your word, that we may fulfill your law in loving our neighbor as we do ourselves change our perspective and understanding of this world that we may serve you in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. The hymn of invitation is 500 and